All right. Well, next week is Christmas Eve on Sunday, and we're going to have a special time on Sunday morning, uh, 9.30 in the courtyard. We're um, having some Christmas treats. Um, some of you have been enlisted to bring some Christmas treats. Breakfast treats. I don't know if you guys have cookies for breakfast, so I'm imagining breakfast treats, but I've been known to have a cookie once in a while for breakfast. But all that to say, 9.30 to 10.30, we're going to have um, special coffee. We'll have our special Taft Avenue baristas out making coffee drinks. So not just the Keurig, we'll actually have some hot chocolate, some other things. So 9.30 to 10.30 early next week. Um, if, so 10.30 we'll have our service in here, but 9.30 we'll start out there. We'll have some music playing and just a great time to gather. It's Christmas Eve, so we got to do that. So, and then at 4.30 we'll have our regular Christmas Eve service here in this room um, for our families, our candlelight Christmas Eve service. All right, little announcement time at the, as we begin. Are you guys having a Merry Christmas so far? Wonderful. Gosh, that was very enthusiastic. I love that. Well, um, if you do have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I want to thank Loray for jumping in and reading all the names. And I saw, look, I, yeah, thank you, Loray. Very good. But I did see some of you out there, and you were kind of rolling your eyes. You were like, boring. I mean, come on. Even if you didn't say it, you probably thought it in you. Your kids were, your, if your kids were in here, they were like, man, like, she's just reading a bunch of names. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's what the genealogy is. And I suppose to today's Bible reader, like you and I, um, there are a few things less meaningful and more frustrating than the frequent lists of names that you have in the Bible. You're like, so blah, 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 begat, blah, 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 la, 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 all that. And then you get to the good part, right? That happens. That, that's happened all, oftentimes for me. It's very difficult to just pay attention to each name and like why they are there. I mean, if you're reading through, through your Bible in a year, you might have come to like 1 Chronicles chapter 9. Like, and that's just all names, unpronounceable names. And you also know that your pastor has come to the standard, the end of the standard list of Christmas passages when he's preaching on the genealogy in Matthew. Okay, so look, there's, there's so many passages, but I do think that there is something for us in this passage today as we look at why does Matthew include the names that he does. And there are some significant observations that we can look at that will orient us, I hope, in this Christmas season. So we have made the point, as we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, coming out of the fall, we've made the point, we've been looking at like the book of Hebrews, and we've been a asking the question, um, about people that are under pressure, under stress, that people are, that the Bible is written to, the New Testament is written to, that they are people that have pressures on them, pressures from a larger culture, a dominant culture, that would just as soon help them, to have them not, or not to follow Jesus, or to claim that someone else is king in the first century. There was a lot of pressure to say Caesar was Lord, and not to say Jesus is Lord. And there was pressure to take a break from that. And I suppose as we are in our 21st century, we also experience those pressures as well. And so when we, this Christmas time, when we were walking into the season, I wanted to take a look at this idea. What about Christmas under pressure? And what we've noted is that the Christmas story is filled with people that are under pressure. Mary was a nobody girl in a nowhere town she was nobody. It was all pressure, no power for her. She had so many forces under, on top of her, 
pushing her to do what they wanted her to do. And she found herself in a very difficult situation. And the angel shows up and says, Mary, the Lord is with you. Joseph also, uh, in terms of a person under pressure, finds himself in a tough spot with the pressures of his own righteousness. He was a righteous man. And he's engaged to a girl who is now pregnant, not by him. The pressures to keep his reputation intact. As he's formulating his plans, as he's under pressure, the angel shows up in his dream and reminds him who he is and not to be afraid and that this child would be called God with us. And that God, that this, his fiance's unplanned pregnancy is going to produce a man who will save his people from his sin and people will know him as Emmanuel. God is with us. And these are great Christmas passages. And this genealogy also reminds us that God works in stories, in the stories of our own stories that are a little bit broken, as well as in our family trees that are a little bit broken. I don't know how far back you've gone in your family tree, but there's always great fruit by the family tree, and there's always fruit that you'd rather not admit in your family tree. And with Jesus' genealogy, we find out that there are great things within this, within his family tree, but there are also some points of scandal within his family tree that we want to look at and make some sense of today. Matthew is purposefully including some things in this genealogy that would, his hearers would have sat up and said, oh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we're going to see what Matthew has. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 1. And in many ways, what we have with the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew provides what we would expect from a genealogy, but there's also some ways that Matthew departs from the well-worn grooves of the genre of what a genealogy is supposed to do. And I think he has something redemptive for us in this Advent season. So let's just, before we look at this, let's just talk a little bit about what the genre of genealogies are. We don't really do this as much today, where when you introduce yourself, you're like, well, my dad is so-and-so, my grandfather was so-and-so, my great-grandfather was so-and-so. Maybe if you really like your genealogy, maybe if you like that, some people, you, you might do that, or some people might have, like, the family crest. They have, like, things embroidered on their shirts. I don't, maybe nobody here, but um, anyway, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but what we see in the Bible is in the first century in the ancient world, your genealogy would show the pedigree of a person. Your descendants would gain meaning and significance by virtue of who came before them. And that the idea that the fruit of the family tree was dependent on the roots of the person. And so genealogies became an important thing to show if you were presenting yourself as someone of significance or power, your ancestors would make a difference about how people would receive you. Now, I just want to make a note, probably for us here in North America, as well as in California, uh, a big part of North American culture has been essentially to escape our family trees if you've immigrated from a family from Europe. Just think about this. This is something that sometimes we don't think about, just our social location as North Americans, that many of us have ancestry from Europe or somewhere else, but we've come here or our families have come here a long time ago to essentially not have a family name from the past, but to make a new name for ourselves. 
And so there's a lot of even in this, this culture, in this passage, that we don't totally understand because we live in a cultural environment where we are, we've, our families have probably come to this place because we want to make a new name for ourselves. This was known as the new world to Europeans who, who emigrated here. And as you think about, even as further west as you get on the continent, the more that becomes true. And you don't get much further west than we here in Orange County. Like, we're right on the ocean. People come here. We still, this is why, this is why the Rams and the Chargers will never have a home game. Do you guys know this? Like, in football, this is why, like, every time a visiting team comes, they fill up the stadium because there's so many transplanted people that are from another place, but they've come to this place to make a name for themselves. So I think sometimes when we come to a passage like this and we come to a genealogy, we balk because we're like, it doesn't matter who my mom was or who my dad was or who my grandpa was. I have come to make a name for myself. And that's part, in some ways, that's a beautiful part of the American story, but in some ways, that's, that's, a, that, that's an impoverished version of the American story at the same time. But it is something when we look at the Bible if we're going to be honest, that it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we live in a cultural moment and in a, in a p- particular location where that's not as valued. You guys hear me on this one? Yeah, that we, we, don't, we don't value the ancestry as much because we value upward mobility, the ability to make a name for ourselves. So that's something, it's, it's something to, that we want to make sense of before we go into this. So um, my mom, shout out to my mom, um, who's probably watching from Idaho this morning, but she has spent hundreds of hours, and I don't know if you've done this before, okay, but she has done hundreds of hours researching our family ancestry. Hundreds of hours, many conversations, binders, full, beautiful stuff. She, she's gone to the East Coast and done chalk rubbings off of, off of tombstones. Anybody else? I mean, come on. My mom's a special person. Mom, you're a special person. I love you. Um, Yes, but she's done quite a bit. She's actually, she's gone back and found the the pages in the ledgers of Ellis Island to see where her great-grandparents came over. So a lot of great, and, and some of that, obviously, even though we might balk at our ancestry, there's something very grounding about knowing where we came from. My grandfather emigrated from Austria um, we, I have ancestry back to, um, to England, that's on my mom's side, but my dad's side is like Scottish, that's why I have the name Craig, which is in Scottish, the, the name Rock, which of course, that's exactly what you would think, right? Okay, <laughs> hold your comments at the end, but sometimes your ancestry can ground us, and we need to be convinced of this as Californians, right? Our ancestry grounds us. It, does, it scars us too, and we'll talk about that in just a second, okay? Um, but there's a few things to note about Matthew's genealogy and his record of Jesus' ancestry that we want to take a note. First of all is this. Let's look at verse 1. It has a very nice pedigree. Jesus is going to have a very respectable pedigree. Look at 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, think about that. Son of David, son of Abraham. Talk about big ones. Those are two big ones in the Jewish world and Jewish genealogy. Son of David, son of Abraham. But there's also some other heavy hitters in there. Son of Isaac. Son of Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. 
it's Jake, it's Israel, Jacob, Israel, that has 12 sons. The sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, son of Judah. Judah is the tribe of Israel from which the kingly line is going to come. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter is the ruling scepter of the king. Son of Judah. Son of David. David is the iconic king of Israel who who was promised the throne and the kingly lineage. And then son of Solomon, the greatest and most powerful king from the nation of Israel. All these names would have been expected if you were trying to impress or even claim some claimage to Messiahship. If you were auditioning for the King of Israel, the Messiah, these are the names that you would want present. Jesus is the son of Abraham, fulfilling the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus is the son of David, fulfilling the promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. It is a, it's a strong showing, everybody. Okay, We might not appreciate it. It's a strong showing. But Matthew does some other interesting things in the genealogy. And maybe on these, these are, since in my mind, sometimes the genealogy are the flyover verses, we might not have caught it. He does something interesting, that the genre of genealogy is usually the genre of flex. Right? Like, you show, you show your strength, you show your pedigree. Thank you very much. You were in awe just then. Okay. It's the genre of, of, of bragging, of braggadocio. But Matthew actually breaks the pattern of this genre of bragging. And he moves off of it into some questionable names, some questionable personalities. And sometimes we learn a lot when speakers or writers do not follow the standard or expected conventions of a genre. Like if you're, if you're in a long-distance relationship and you're writing letters, it means you lived 50 years ago. Um, okay, but if all, if, all the, if, if, the, if, the, if all the letters begin, my dearest John... And they all end with all my love, Jane. Something like that, right? Okay? But if one day you get it, um, just to John, colon, right? And then you end, it ends sincerely, Jane. You know something has changed. Genre, how you operate within a genre gives you that there's meaning just in changing what you say. And Matthew is going to change here. Matthew does this when he mentions some unexpected folks particularly four different women. Look at Matthew 1-2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, all to be expected. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. He mentions the mother of Perez was Tamar. That's unexpected. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab. I got that one right. Yes, Aminadab. Um, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, all to be expected. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. He mentions Rahab as the mother. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, he mentions the mother. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, 
which we know as Bathsheba. All in all, he mentions or alludes to four women, five if you count Mary. The mention of each of these women would have raised an eyebrow. One, because moms typically did not get a shout-out in the genealogy. Sorry, ladies. In the first century, in the ancient world, the moms did not usually get a shout-out in the genealogy. If you read Luke's, you don't get the moms. Luke also goes all the way back to Adam, but that's a different story. But two, because each of these women, these four women, are actually kind of famous, or would we rather say infamous? They've all got a little scandal going on around them. Which leads us to the question, why does Matthew include these four crazy grandmas? I, some, of you guys are, some of you guys are like, hey, take it easy on crazy grandmas. Okay? I got you. I know you. I see you out there. Okay? It's okay. Tongue in cheek, everybody. Okay? Um, but why does, why does Matthew include them? But it becomes something of a head-scratcher. Here, here are the stories, in brief, of these four women. Let's start with Tamar, okay? Now, the Bible is, I've, I've said this before, the Bible is a book for adults, everybody, okay? I don't know why we teach this to our kids, but it's crazy. I'm, I'm kidding. I know why we teach it to our kids. But look, there's, it goes PG-13 to R often in there. And with these stories, they are. Over 17 to, to must be present, must have a parent accompanying Okay, Genesis, or Genesis 38 is Tamar's story. And it's a weird interruption to the Joseph story in the book of Genesis. Tamar marries the oldest son of Judah, who the kingly line is supposed to come through. She marries the oldest son of Judah. Okay, so the oldest son of Judah is heir to the throne, but it turns out that the, the oldest son of Judah is a bad dude. Actually, Judah's kind of a bad dude. He's the guy who convinces everybody to sell Joseph to like beat him up, throw him in a cistern, and sell him as a slave? Like that's Judah's idea. Who the scepter will not depart? That's Judah. And his son is also a bad dude. So God puts him to death. So Judah, so, uh, so God puts him to death. So Judah, the father-in-law, sends in one of his brothers to impregnate Tamar so that she can have a son. To, it's called um, a Leverite marriage, okay? Um, and you might be, look, we've come a long way, everybody, okay? Bear with me, all right? But in the ancient world, this would be how Tamar could have, uh, could have some security. She could have family. She would be under this, this umbrella. But what happens is he's a bad dude, too, and so God kills him, too, which means that Tamar gets a bit of a reputation of being a son killer, so Judah says, hey, I got a younger son. He's not ready to be married, but when he is, you can marry him. But in the meantime, go live with your old family and be a widow. So Tamar, she hears that the older son has grown up, but he has not been given to her to fulfill this obligation. And so Tamar does this very interesting thing. Um, so Tamar is left without a husband and without a son, high and dry, so the rest of the story involves Judah going up to a festival to shear his sheep. Okay, sorry about that. I, it's code. Anyway, I don't want to we'll read the story in Genesis 38. It will be difficult. Okay. Um, so he goes up to shear his sheep and sleeps with a pagan cult prostitute who turns out to be Tamar in disguise. 
what? My gosh, what am I doing up here? She becomes pregnant. She also takes deposit from him, which is proof of his identity. She goes back home. Three months later, she's found to be pregnant. Word gets to Judah. Judah is like, she was immoral. Let's burn her. He says that. Right as they're about to do it, she's all, bring me, bring me all the stuff. Bring me the deposit. And she's all, whoever, has, whoever belongs to this stuff is the one who did it. And Judah realizes that he has been duped, like his grandfather was apt to do Jacob to his brother Esau. And it actually, in this turn of events, produces a strange (laughs) transformation in Judah's life. And it also, Tamar has a son, and because of Tamar's bold action, the kingly line of Judah continues on. What? Tamar Grandma Tamar. We're going to Grandma Tamar's house for Christmas, right? Yeah, you get the idea. All right, so that's one. That's one. You guys want me to keep going? Because it gets better. All right, so the second one is Rahab. Rahab, we can find out her story in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1, also in Joshua 6.25. As the nation of Israel comes to the edge of the promised land, they cross the Jordan River, but the first thing that stands in their way is the great city and the great walls of the city of Jericho. It's impenetrable. There's no way they're going to get in. What they need to do is they need to figure out a way in. And so as the spies go in, as they sneak their way in, it is a prostitute named Rahab that gives them hospitality and lets them into the city to do reconnaissance and lets them out of the city and then also deceives the city officials so that they can get away free. The prostitute, Rahab. I'm I'm telling you, like, we have one lady who dressed up like a prostitute and now we have another who is a known prostitute. She eventually ties a crimson cord on her window before the wall falls, Rahab before the walls fall, Rahab escapes, throws in her lot with the nation of Israel. Rahab turns out to be an intelligent, crafty, formidable woman, but she comes from questionable stock and profession. Grandma Rahab. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. We have amens. And then there's Ruth. Ruth might be the bright spot in this. Ruth. The book of Ruth, you can read about her in the book of Ruth. It's the time between the judges and, uh, and Samuel is when we have Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite, which means she's a Gentile, who, married, um, who, who, who was married but chose eventually to attach herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was an Israelite. But Naomi had suffered the loss of her own husband and the death of her two sons, which meant that Naomi and Ruth had to come together in the land of Moab. They decided to go back to Israel, back to her hometown, Bethlehem. And when they get there, they have no jobs, they have no food, they have no support, they have nothing. And what Ruth decides to do is she's going to provide for Naomi. And so the only way she can get food is by gleaning, which means after the, the, the harvesters have gone through the field, she's allowed to go through and pick up what they missed. She gleans in the field of a man, a Bethlehemite named Boaz. Boaz sees what Ruth is doing for Naomi and offers them both protection. 
and also offers Ruth a chance to harvest among the harvesters so she can get more for Naomi. Ruth eventually breaks protocol. Now here's a code language again. On the threshing floor, after Boaz eats and drinks until his heart is merry, she uncovers his feet. Now, for us, we're like, that's pretty tame. Back in the day, this was a scandal. She lays at his feet at night. She uncovers his feet. He wakes up. He's like, who's this woman at my feet? And she's like, it's me. And it's me, but will you take me in? Would you? Basically, she's proposing to him in a very scandalous way. If anybody else saw this, there's like this midnight conversation between Ruth and Boaz. And if you read the whole thing, it's this, it's this love story filled with subtleties, honor, but not without a pretty significant amount of scandal. And then you have Bathsheba. We read about Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Bathsheba, while her husband is out fighting a war, she decides to take a bath on the roof of her house. Now, that's one thing when you live in a terraced community like this, and the palace is at the top of this hill, and the terraced community is here, and you can see the tops of all the roofs. So she takes a bath out on the roof of her house. King David, who's supposed to be out at war, but he's sitting on his rear end at the palace because he's lost his mojo. In the time when kings go out to war, David's not out to war with his people. He sees her, is consumed by lust, uses his power, calls for her, and then whether, he, whether they consensually have sex or whether he rapes her, we don't know. <laughs> like, are you, you're like, Pastor Craig, this is a little bit more Christmas than I'm able to take, okay? All right, hang with me, everybody. I told you, these, these, are, these are stories that if people heard these stories in Jesus' pedigree, they'd be like, whoa, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, yeah, but Tamar, Bathsheba, Rahab, Ruth, whoa. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David kills her husband, takes her for his wife. Bathsheba will be the mother of Solomon, the wealthiest, most powerful king of Israel. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Whose house do you want to go to at Christmas? The crazy grandma. Why, why does Matthew include them? Why does he go out of his way to make sure that his readers know that they are in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew's using this to make a point. And what is his point? That's the big question. And, and scholars have been a little divided on what the point is. Here's my, my take on what the point is, is this. There's a couple things. One is this. All of these women are not Jewish. All of these women are all Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba, whether she marries Uriah the Hittite. These are all people that have come, these are all women that have not been initially part of the covenant of Israel. But they are eventually brought into the covenant of Israel. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we find out in the, in the book of Ephesians, when the, the Apostle Paul is talking about the good news, he says he's talking about the Gentiles and he's saying, look, God sent Jesus to come and preach peace to those like you, Gentiles, who are far off. These women are far off 
And yet God says, I want them in the story. I want them in the story. Far off. In in Ephesians it says, he's come to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Matthew's making a point. And in the the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to find this. Some of the early people who come to pay tribute to Jesus are foreigners, Gentiles, the Magi. He makes a point that the faith of the centurion in Capernaum is greater than those in Israel. We talked about the one woman to ever win an argument with Jesus is the woman in the Syrophoenician woman. The centurion at the cross who says, surely this was the Son of God. In the ending of the Great Commission, he says, make disciples, go into all the world, to all the nations, and make disciples. And Matthew has a particular interest in those who are far off being brought near. And he's using the genealogy to do it. Matthew is pro-Gentile. They are far off, but God has always intended to come and offer to those who are far off. God has always intended to come and offer peace to those who are far off. Now there's another point. Not just that they're Gentiles, that they're far off. But why does Matthew include these women? And maybe the best way to, to state it, some people say, well, they're all sinners. Well, everybody's a sinner. Like, okay, I mean, and it's, it's difficult. These are particularly difficult. Um, but they're all women of scandal. This is why when you get to, chapter, to verse 16, he says, he, t- he talks about Jesus who is the son of Joseph, whose mother, whose wife was Mary. Because she will be the fifth woman of scandal in this crazy grandma train. Why does Matthew include them? Each, each, of, those, each of their scandals has some kind of irregularity when it came to the father of their children. Whether it's Tamar, whether it's Ruth, whether it's Bathsheba, whether it's Rahab. There's some kind of irregularity about the father of their children. I like the way that the British scholar R.T. France kind of dryly puts it. He says, perhaps Matthew thought that Jesus' birth of a socially insignificant and unmarried mother needed some scriptural support. I think Matthew has an appreciation for the way God is able to work in this world with the strangeness and the brokenness of his people. When God comes into the world, it's a scandal. When God wants to do something He oftentimes finds unconventional and uncomfortable ways of accomplishing his own purposes. When God brings about the promises of the covenant through the kingly house of Judah, Tamar must take bold action and scandalous action. When God wants to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land, a prostitute has to step up and say, I'll do it. When God wants to build a kingly household, Ruth, a Gentile, takes a scandalous risk offering herself to the Bethlehemite Boaz. Their son is Jesse, his son is David. What links all of these women together, all these grandmas, is that they're all women of scandal. Some that we may be comfortable with, like I was, as I was looking at the, reading the story of Ruth, it's like, Ruth, the story of Ruth feels charming and warm 
and it's wonderful, and you just think, Boaz, what a great guy, and like, it's just a wonderful story. It has a whole book of the Bible. But I was, as I was reading the story of Tamar and Bathsheba, like, I felt yucky inside. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I think what we need to understand, the idea that God is with us this Advent season, what we need to understand is that God knows how to work through a good scandal. Even saying that is scandalous, right? Even, even just recognizing that God knows how to work within a scandal. I would say, maybe we could say it this way. God chooses to redeem the most scandalous and sinful situations. It's who he is. He knows how to do it. And he must take great joy in doing it if he's like, Matthew, when you give the genealogy, you've got to include these ladies. I need people to know that I love to redeem people who can't who are struggling with the decisions they've made. Think about this. What if the worst failure of your life was part of Scripture? What if the worst failure of your life was part of Scripture? And what you would be like the shame. Think about the shame. Like the Apostle Paul is like, I used to kill Christians. And that's in Scripture. People read that today. Peter it's like, I denied Jesus in his most important moment. And that's in Scripture. People read that today. But the promise is this. Even in your worst moment of failure, God will say, I'm going to only include that because I'm going to redeem it into something beautiful. And I'm going to use it to bless people over and over and over again because I know how to take broken things and I know how to make them well. I know how to take shame, and I know how to turn it into joy. And we're going to put these crazy grandmas in here because I want everyone to know that's the business that I'm in. When I send my son, it is to redeem the things that are broken. It is to find the things that are lost. It is to preach peace to those who are far off. Because that's the kind of God I am. I'm not the God who lives in a temple and will not go out and you got to clean yourself up before you get to me. We're going to tear that veil in half and we're going to let me loose in the world because I need to get out there and I need to let people know that I see them and I love them and there's nothing they have done and nothing that has been done to them that disqualifies them from the salvation that I have made sure to come in this world. Jesus is Lord, and he has come as a baby, but he will grow up, and he will come, and he will gather the weirdest people around him. Just look around, everybody. And if, if all goes well, it'll even get weirder. If all goes well, if God's word gets out to those who need it, to those who know they need it, that it will just gather more and more strange but grateful and transformed people. I love that it's, it's, it's so, even just thinking about the Tamar-Judah thing, in the middle of all that, it transforms Judah's heart. 
He changes, God changes his heart in the middle of this crazy scandal. I think as we're getting ready for Christmas and as we're getting ready to, to visit other people's houses, and uh, you might even have, like, I don't know, you might have your own crazy grandma or your crazy aunt or your crazy uncle, and maybe there's people in your, in your family that you're really proud of and that you look to for guidance. Like, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Maybe there's people in your family that you're like, look, I don't, that person is, is on the good side weird. On the bad side, they're, they're, not, they're not a good person. We all come from various families, and we know that there's going to be, in our own family trees, there's going to be difficulty, even in our own lives. There are things that maybe we still remember that we've done that we carry regret for. Or maybe there are things that have been done to us that still evoke the anger and rage that they deserve, but also... Maybe I, we remember them, it, it brings us to shame and we just want to hide. When we look at our own stories and we understand that God has chosen to be with us, we have to affirm this idea that God wants to make it clear that God with us, that I am with you, that the person of Jesus, that he knows how you feel, and he wants to make it clear that, the, again, there's nothing. As long, as long as I am in this pulpit, you will always hear me say, there's nothing you have done and nothing that has been done to you that can separate you from the salvation and the joy that that salvation is meant to bring. Nothing. There is no disqualification. God can work in any of those situ situations. No matter what family you're going back to or you're anticipating, whatever it is, God has a way of taking what is broken and using it for his own glory. Amen. If, there is any, if there's anything about Christmas that we need to remember is that God has come near and he's come to preach to those who are far off and that includes you and me. We don't have it together. But we can enter into this transformation that we have in him, in his son, and the love that he has given to us. He seems to think that we, we will thrive if he is in our lives and that he's working our past mistakes into something that he can be using into the future.